everybody. Welcome to the Integrated Health Podcast. I am joined by my co-host, Angelo Keeley. Angelo. Hey there, everybody. How's it going? What's going on, Angelo? Um, Life, man. Awesome life. I love it. Yeah, I'm loving it. How are your kids? They're doing really well. Yeah. They're really sweet. Are you integrating health in your life, Angelo? I'm trying. Yeah? Yeah, I think it's more of a process than a uh, destination. I agree. It's a journey destination. Same here, man. Thing, yeah. Something new every day. Mm-hmm. Something new every day. Well, uh, we actually have Dos Angelos here, and I'm about to introduce our other guest here, Angelo Silla Birdie. Hey, morning. How are you, buddy? Doing awesome. It's good to see you. Thank you for coming in this morning. Thank you. Um, I feel honored to be here. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I've memorized his uh, bio. As you know, I like to memorize the bios of our guests. Yeah. And what I could tell you about Angelo Silla Birdie is he has a master's uh, degree at the Naropa Contemplative Counseling Psychology. He's a clinical director of Young Adult Program AIM House, and he's vice president of Colorado Group Psychotherapy Society. And he's interested in the intersection of relational psychodynamic psychotherapy, mindfulness-based group process, and unique opportunity of the young adults at this stage of life. Angela, we're so stoked to have you here, man. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here, guys. It's kind of been a long time coming. We've talked about doing this for a while. Um, we all get into pretty great conversations when we get together. We're like, man, we should record this, you know? So it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Yeah. It's just nice to be able to get in the same room with you guys and hang out and actually have one of our conversations. And to do it with headphones on. Ref- it's, uh, absolutely. It feels <laughs> much more official. Absolutely. I'm just glad to have something you're said be recorded because you always say stuff and i'm like god that guy is smart and like right. not just smart but grounded and man i want more people to hear that i want to hear i want people to hear what angelo Silberti says yeah so i'm just grateful that you're being recorded you know and in, <laughs> and, in, and, in, and in full disclosure you know we we've we've really done our best to not make this particular podcast an infomercial for aim house in any way but rather to to really include lots of different people but so in full disclosure angelo and i have worked together for 10 years now right Ten years now. You started working at, at Aim House in what capacity? I started. Um, I was still a student at Naropa and really wanted to get in the field and actually experience what it was like working with young adults. And so, I just started as a mentor. That's right. You even did some overnights, right? I did an overnight mentoring. Yeah. Anyway, so and he's come a long way, and he now really oversees most of our clinical operations. And it's wonderful just to have you here. And um, we want to kind of ask you some questions for the people who don't know you sure. and don't know sort of your approach. Um, and in the work that you do. And uh, I'm going to let my co-host start off with the first question here. All right. Thank you. <laughs> I guess just starting more generally, how do you see your work? What is it that you do? What is it that you do as a therapist, as a clinical director, working at AIM House? Wow. Um, that's a great question. And I think it can be a challenge to articulate, but what I try to do is both with the young adults that I'm working with as well as the families is really first form a relationship that can function as a secure base that they could have the feeling they could come in and talk about anything in the room and that it would be something that we could inquire into. It's something that we could um, just have the feeling that nothing is off limits and that even feelings of ambivalence and anger and shame and confusion um, could be understood, could be appreciated, could be looked into as trying to understand what it might be communicating about where their edge is in life and what they're moving towards. Um, So really using that relationship as a secure base to then kind of lead them towards more integration in their life, more feelings of well-being, meaning, 
personal agency, um, as well as to kind of interrupt some patterns that can be very self-destructive. And I think good psychotherapy has to really um, do both because all of us as individuals, I think, can gravitate unconsciously into things that are quite destructive for us. And to have somebody that we trust and feel understood and appreciated by also be in a capacity of challenging us and pointing out when we're starting to lead into something that is going to be destructive either to ourselves or to relationships is really important. And that also happens with families. And there's ways in which families um, can organize into particular patterns, uh, particular ways of relating that I think often lead members of the family not feeling seen or understood or appreciated. Sometimes they feel too caught in a particular kind of role and there's a rigidity that kind of gets calcified in the family. And then the family stops communicating in new ways and stops progressing and stops um, functioning ways that are really fulfilling. So having somebody that's at the same time both um, a part of the system but also a bit outside of it to look at what's happening, to challenge the norms that are getting developed, and to really help direct emotional communication occur um, is, uh, is a part of, you know, really how I see my work as a, as a family psychotherapist. And so primarily you work as a therapist for young adults as well as for families. Right. And I think we're here really interested in hearing more from you, um, more specifics about both of those dynamics. What, what do you notice is really um, critical and important for helping young adults to have more of that integrated life and have more well-being, as well as, you know, what are the main things that you see coming up in, in families? Wow, that's a, it's a big question. Let's see. And we can break them apart, you know, but for our audience, it'd be great if we could kind of focus on both those. Well, I, first, I think first off, um, I'm aware of the very real challenge that I think face young adults right now, even more so than what we've seen in recent history. Um, when I'm meeting with a young adult for the first time and one of the, and I ask them to tell me about themselves and some of what, some of the first things they say are a mental health diagnosis, it's very concerning. You know, sometimes you'll get a diagnosis first and then you'll, you'll get what medications they're on. And I, I see that as in some ways a kind of failure of the holding environment that um, has been surrounded by a young adult at times where there's, you know, there's such a hunger for who am I and what's my identity and what stories can I associate with myself. And if there's only a sense of I am this diagnosis, um, if there's only a sense of I, I'm defined by some of the challenges I have, then really the initial goal of the therapy is to create more, a broader, deeper, richer sense of self. And sometimes that really looks, that really means looking at traumatic experience. It means looking at, um, how can we creatively transform some of the pain they've been through? But also, where are they when they feel most free of conflict, when they feel most mm -hmm. alive, most passionate? And really, how can we leverage some of those things to provide a new sense of meaning for mm -hmm. them? Because sometimes I think there's just this feeling like the most meaningful thing about me is, or the, the thing that gets the most reaction from people around me is the ways in which I've challenged. I've, I've, been, uh, I've, I've challenged, faced challenges in my life or have, have struggled. So um, 
really trying to bridge and form a relationship with a young adult where we're able to tease out much more of them and their life story than just a very kind of narrow focus. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems just very, very salient. And I, and I think as a culture, one of the biggest challenges we have right now is there's this long spectrum between when somebody's biologically an adult versus when the culture is telling them that they matter. Uh, whether that's getting a job or school, and then you know, an undergraduate degree isn't enough. You need to go to grad school, and there's just this longer and longer kind of period of time where it's easy to wonder: Do I matter? Do I have a difference? You know, and especially how can I feel that if I may be struggling in ways that other people that I'm friends with have succeeded? So I think um, having the therapy return to when they feel most alive. Uh, what provides a sense of meaning and for them to feel within the relationship with the therapist as well as to work with the family for a young adult to feel like they have meaning and purpose within the family is vital, Mm -hmm. especially outside of that kind of role. Maybe the role that they've gotten sort of calcified into is being the identified patient and we have to help the family to see and appreciate them in much different, broader ways. Mm-hmm. Because if, if they can't have a, a feeling of meaning within the family, then it's very hard to have that outside of life, outside in other areas of life. Angel, how did you get involved in this work? Like, did you, did, when, you were, when you were a kid and other kids were playing with fire trucks, did you put on a therapist sweater and say, this is what I want to do? <laughs> how, how, did you, when, like, how, did it, how did you come to the work? How did you get here? Um, I'll just go with what I'm associating to, Sure. which is that um, I remember spending time with my dad and my dad was uh, most, it seemed like he just was most enthralled and alive when he was talking about the human body. And he was a doctor, he was a physician. And there was a way in which he was just amazed and loved everything about the human body and how the human body evolved. And there was, there was kind of this way in which he was never as happy as when he was sitting down at a table with uh, a stack of medical journals going through Mm. medicine. Mm. And I just remember early in life realizing that the way my dad felt about the human body, I feel about the human mind. Mm. And um, I think that that led me into um, being very interested in Buddhism and contemplative approaches to understanding the mind. Um, And then from there, realizing that there's a lot of wisdom and what we've learned psychologically over a hundred years now uh, as a different dimension or angle on understanding the mind. So um, that's really how I got into it. Just, um, you know, as human beings living in a world which is incredibly rich and beautiful and also terrifying at moments and, and traumatizing. And how do we live a life in the midst of that that feels rich and how we maintain a sense of inner coherence in the midst of all of our different roles, how we um, feel kind of compelled towards our own inner directives in the midst of, you know, convention, uh, social convention, which hems us in in particular ways. I, I just find that to kind of be one of the richest things about being human. So I, I gravita- I've gravitated to it because I love it. Yeah, it's obvious that you do. Yeah. So when you see, when you're working with somebody, um, you know, and I, I know that it's a process, right? Like you talked about the early part of the process of forming some currency in the relationship and moving away from identified or at least pointing out assets versus just, that, mm-hmm. you know, diagnosis and things like that. But when you see a client start to kind of break through or, or identify or start to shift, 
Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, what do you see happening with clients? I know it's not the same with every client, but when someone's kind of like going from this place of I'm this scapegoat in the family, I'm this diagnosis and I'm that to something else. Can you speak about that a little bit? What that process looks like? Well, there's an energy in the room, which Mm -hmm. is, um, um, it's just incredibly dynamic. And, and, when I see somebody all of a sudden begin to relate to their experience in a different way, like maybe they've struggled with anxiety throughout their entire life. And all, now all of a sudden, not only do they have a very clear name for it, but they have an appreciation for the fact that they have such a rich understanding of it that they could take their experience of it and help other people with it and realize that they can kind of creatively transform their experience. Mm-hmm. And then the sense of vitality and confidence um, and uh, forming a, an entirely new identity mm. is is just like you're watching kind of, it's like you're watching a birthing process. You're watching somebody come alive mm. in this entirely new way. And it, it makes, it just makes everything worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you, do you have an experience with, um, you know, you mentioned you mentioned before people having this identity with diagnosis, and this identity. How I would sort of phrase it for is like they they they've identified strongly with what's wrong with them. What is that? What? How does that change in somebody? You know, how does somebody how does somebody go from? I know it's not like well, I mean. The pharmaceutical industry, like I think you take a pill and that changes, but we know that that doesn't have long-term effects. It might help somebody get to a place of seeing something. But how does that change in somebody? What is what, what happens inside someone to begin to see their assets versus their, their diagnosis? Well, I think oftentimes um, the focus gets broader and wider, and they're able to see and talk as they're able to talk in the therapy about more aspects of themselves in different dimensions of themselves. There's a sense of them becoming more real in a broad way and they become more nuanced. There's an appreciation for both the things that they have skills for and then the things that they really struggle with. Um, But there's a sense that they become more of an integrated whole person Hmm. rather than just a set of diagnoses. And, And I think that that happens as we really take a very curious stance just towards the life experience that they've gone through Mm -hmm. and talking and sharing and exploring together the different kind of very, very emotionally significant chapters of their life. Mm -hmm. And I I think that a lot of those, that kind of fixation on one particular thing starts to break apart as a person's able to do that more. Like instead of I'm anxious, I'm experiencing anxiety. I can identify the feeling as separate from who I am over time. There's some space that comes between that. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. And well, it's like, tell me the story of your anxiety. Mm. You know, um, when did it first begin to come up? How, how did you notice it? Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like in the, when you felt anxious, who did you go to for comfort? Mm. How do they comfort you? Where is did, it in your body? Like that? Kind yeah. Of, yeah. Um, and we begin to take something that just kind of feels like, um, something that's a given and we begin to kind of pull it apart and understand it from more of its various components mm-hmm. as well as sort of appreciating what that anxiety might have been communicating. Mm-hmm. Like I think I have the privilege of often working with the young adults that are kind of the most sensitive ones in their family system and they're picking up on everything that's happening. Mm-hmm. And so they really begin to act something out 
as a way of asking the entire family to step into a therapeutic process mm. and to begin a dialogue and talk about the things that nobody else really wants to be kind discussing. of the canary in the coal mine almost. exactly yeah 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 i've heard you speak many times to putting words to feelings mm -hmm. and thoughts how does that relate to what we're speaking to right now like what's the power of that why is it so important to to talk through these things and put words to feelings well um it's a good question and you know i'm, I'm reminded of a quote which is um you know any human suffering can be dealt with if it can be put into a story and I think that there's a way, there are ways in which just as human beings, we're natural storytellers. We just gravitate towards that. And, it, and it's a way that we really uh, learn about ourselves and being human and managing our experience. And what we know from a neuroscience perspective is that it has a profound, it has a profoundly integrative effect in the brain. You know, typically it's more of the, the, the um, right side of the brain, which is pulling information about our emotional or embodied experience. And it's the linguistic function of the left side of the brain uh, through the process of actually putting words to feelings that comes in and is able to kind of integrate and digest what's happening. And so as a person is able to really practice that with somebody else that they simultaneously feel felt by, so there's that kind of feeling of emotional empathy, like a person is really connecting with what it is I'm experiencing. There's an entire um, kind of orchestra of events that are happening within that person that creates more of an integrated nervous system. And that integration leads towards more and more feelings of health and well-being. Is it also just creating kind of new neuropathways? Like if your experience has been trauma and lack of connection in that, and you're experiencing for the first time perhaps what you perceive as genuine empathy and genuine connection... Is that actually rerouting some stuff going on there? Is it giving a different experience? I'm, I'm wondering about that. It, seems it absolutely like it is. I mean, I, I, I think being in, in a safe place with another human being and talking about these kinds of things is one of the most experiential things actually that we can do because in those moments there are new neural networks that are being connected mm -hmm. as well as when we take a kind of a stance of curiosity and are investigating something it stimulates, uh, actually, we could kind of nerd out here, but it, it stimulates the release of acetylcholine in the nucleus accumbens. And that actually is Can a little bit- Can we do bit... a little vocal jam on acetylcholine? <laughs> Just kidding. Acetylcholine. Acetyl oh. oh. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. you feel good. <laughs> but but we, let's nerd out, though, please. No, this out. is the kind of, I would love to understand this better, so please nerd yes. out and break it down for us. And I apologize for the interruption. <laughs> well, um, let me see what can I say about it. Acetylcholine is a little bit like Miracle Grow for new, for new neuronal connections. So, as a, as as we are taking that kind of stance and we're with a person in the room and we're both exploring um, intentionally something that they have struggled with and we're talking about it and the therapist is kind of um, facilitating introspection. There's just this plethora of new activity that starts to happen in the brain, which week in and week out actually gets anchored. So there are ways that this can be researched and there are PET scans and there are different um, kinds of ways that they have studied what is actually occurring in the brain in psychotherapy over time. And you can see documented uh, changes occurring in the nervous system in the brain over the course of a psychotherapy. That's really cool. 
Really cool. It's really cool. I mean, and actually a part of it, um, depends, you know, how far you want to go into this, but they've actually really done studies uh, looking at the face of the client and the face of the psychotherapist and what is happening in facial expression. Uh, Reinhold Krauser has done some work on this, which I think is, is really interesting. It, it, it was a meta-analysis of different approaches to therapy with really trying to understand what is it about psychotherapy in general that seems to be helpful to people. And what was found is that initially a client might come in with um, an emotional experience of shame and the therapist immediately matches that feeling of shame and then quickly takes that feeling to a different place where the therapist may show back to the client a feeling of anger that somebody may have said something or talked to them in a way that they felt shamed. Um, A client may come in feeling hopeless and sad and their face is expressing that. And the therapist very quickly matches that and then moves on to another feeling of curiosity. So there's a way even non-verbally in the interaction between a therapist and the client that the client is learning, and I think this goes back to new neuronal networks, that there are multiple ways of feeling about a particular thing that they're going through. Mm. So in, in, in this uh, really process of discovering oneself in connection with a psychotherapist, it's, a, it's obviously a very sacred environment. It's something that is a protected environment and needs to be in order for that safety to occur. occur. How important in maintaining those gains is daily practice is because how I see it, as you're saying, Mm -hmm. and feel free to go, no, Danny, you're way off the mark. But how I see it is like, and this is, this is, this is dumb Danny's interpretation for those of you who made comments about, but basically how I basically see it is like, you're recreating some safety in a microcosm of this relationship. And in so doing, you're achieving some type of clarity and confidence as an individual and a different identification of self. Then hopefully that starts to give you some confidence to experience and interact differently in your life Mm -hmm. outside of that Mm -hmm. relationship, but Mm -hmm. you're kind of practicing it there. So, so do you see a difference when someone has is living in a supportive environment and has that reinforced? Not, not, Hey, I remember what you said with Angelo today, we're going to do that. But just this idea of, you know, you're, you, you, you have that as a safety net and a place to explore and practice as kind of a rehearsal. I hate the mm-hmm, word mm-hmm. for life. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that sort of how it works? <laughs> well, I think it does. I mean, going back to that standpoint of, um, the therapeutic space and relationship as a secure base mm-hmm. to then be able to experiment more outside of the office with different things. Mm-hmm. And what I think clients report is that they begin to feel like they have more options and they feel like they have more choices in their life. Whereas before something just felt like a given that they were going to do this thing in their experience in the world, there's just more of a feeling of, Oh, I'm seeing that this is possible. I'm seeing I could, um, say yes to this person where I'm very used to saying yes over and over again and taking things on and realizing I don't have to say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I can uh, respond to this situation in different ways. And then I think, you know, one of the benefits of being in a place like aim house where there's kind of an integration between, uh, what's happening in the therapy as well as what participants get to experience with staff 
is an opportunity to work with staff that understand um, affect regulation, that understand skills and concrete tools that a participant can use to actually regulate themselves when they're feeling out of control. Mm-hmm. And that relationship with the, with the other staff or mentor as facilitating their ability to have more kind of um, agency mm-hmm. in, in their emotional lives. Mm-hmm. And what's agency? Speak to that for a minute. What, when you say agency, what do you mean by that? Well, it's something that I would kind of consider as, as just one of the factors that would be in place for mental health. And this is something I'm interested in is, um, what, what do we mean when we're talking about mental health and well-being? Mm-hmm. Um, we, um, the DSM does, it does not have any conception of mental health really outside of the GAF scale, the global um, assessment of functioning. But um, So it's only really negative. It's only it's, like... It's negative. It, it is. It's, is. Is the symptom present or absent? Is yeah. it more or huh. less than two weeks? Huh. And I think that's a problem because huh. I think that um, oftentimes I know it, my, for myself as a client and as well as people that I'm working with, we want to have a sense of what are we moving towards? Mm. You know, what's possible? Mm-hmm. And I, I see agency as being a really vital part of that. And for people to feel like they have choices in their life and they do have a sense of power and control, both over what's happening internally as well as what's happening in their relationships. And I think it's vital for young adults because there, um, there's often a feeling that there's so much outside of their control. And um, to be able to name and kind of claim that sense of agency is, I think, really vital for them to feel like uh, they can achieve things in their life that they want to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Thank you. I think it's an important part of resilience, mm-hmm. which, you know, I would, uh, I think we could kind of consider as another important factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And can, can resilience be fostered? Like, can resilience be taught and modeled or worked through? Or do you kind of believe that people sort of, are inherently more resilient than not? It's a complicated question, but just can we build resilience? I think we could absolutely build resilience. There's no doubt. In fact, that um, we have research to back that up. And I think a big part of this is where actually I've been very inspired by mindfulness um, because um, really kind of working uh, to direct in in a very intentional way our focus and and, um, awareness we know allows for the prefrontal cortex and for the limbic brain uh, to uh, be more connected. And that gives us the ability to really monitor and modulate what we're feeling internally. And that capacity to monitor and modulate what's happening for us is really kind of seen, I think, one ways that we could really appreciate as the foundation of resilience. Which leads me to my favorite question that I asked Sona last week, and I'll ask you, is mental health, perhaps, since the DSM-3 is not really you know, stating what it is, maybe we can come up with our own definition. I'm curious if our mental health, a, 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 a measure of our mental health and well-being is the amount of space we have for ourselves between stimulus and response. Right. The space to consider... I'm feeling angry. I want to yell right now, but that's going to be hurtful to somebody else and ultimately hurtful to myself. So I'm going to breathe, come back to the situation, pay attention to the feeling, Mm -hmm. but not act out on somebody, for example, Mm -hmm. or I'm not going to road rage at somebody in a car. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to slam a dish down when I'm doing the dishes. Cause is, is, do you, do you see, is that, am I somewhere with that? I keep trying to come up with this really simple definition, but it just seems like the more space we have between 
stimulus and response dictate sort of our choices. Absolutely. And, and I think it's vital because in that space, we have options and we have the ability to decide really what we want to do with the impulse that we're having. And what we also understand at this point is that that um, has to be developed over time. Mm-hmm. I think that sometimes we have an expectation that everybody should be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we have really compelling evidence for the fact that that's not necessarily true. What is true is that people can develop that over time. And um, there are, vi- you know, I, we have practices like mindfulness practices to really help that. But it 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 does it comes back to our ability to actually inhibit impulses, to actually put the brake on what we might want to do. So, um, yeah. Which is kind of evolution in motion, right? Because otherwise it'd be, if we didn't have, if human beings didn't have that capacity, you know, we might be, get hungry and eat each other, like for example, mm-hmm. or kill kill people more often. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I know that that happens. But, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not, feeling a little concerned. I am such a hungry small studio. and I'm not going to eat either one of you <laughs> just to be perfectly clear. I have yeah. no intention of cannibalizing. Of course you're not. Yeah, yeah, definitely not. Yeah. But you know, it, like it's sort of what separates us in some ways from that, from the rest of, you know, all the living beings on the planet is that we do actually have the opportunity. <laughs> and I wish I could take a picture of Angela's <laughs> face looking at me right now. I'm not scared. Not you, him. Oh, about him. Yeah. <laughs> He's looking at me like, what? No, I, I totally agree with it. And, <laughs> and I think that's sometimes a really uh, surprising moment for people to actually realize you don't have to act that you don't have right. to act on what you, what it is you really want to do right. in this moment. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I know in the work that I do with people, especially around recovery and addiction, that's, that's the biggest thing is that, well, wait a minute, you actually have a choice. And it's like, well, I'm not better if I still want to use sometimes. It's like, well, that's, that's not the issue. Like all of us want to use totally. something. It's the right. matter of playing that out. What's that going to look like? Why is it better for me not to? And just the more we practice that, the more space mm-hmm. allow, it allows us to play. But it doesn't mean we don't have the impulse. It just means we start to learn to not act upon them. Right. You know? And I think that's also really important for our self-esteem, actually, because mm-hmm. I uh, sometimes work um, with, with people who have a very harsh or kind of almost unrealistic expectation for themselves mm-hmm. and for what they should be experiencing. And there can sometimes be this idea, like you're saying, that, well, I shouldn't get triggered anymore. Right. Or I shouldn't be having these impulses. Or if I'm feeling this particular way, it means that I really, um, I haven't done as much work as I thought I have. I've regressed, whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And um, that's where I think maybe another really important aspect of mental health is, is having a realistic sense of self-esteem based on understanding that as human beings, we are, uh, our birthright is an enormous range of, of emotional experience. Mm-hmm. And there are going to be days where we feel great. And there are going to be days where we feel obsessive, mm-hmm. where we feel highly anxious, where we feel angry and out of control. And that's, that's in just inherently being human. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I kind of cringe when I'm walking through a store like Whole Foods and I see um, a magazine that says like stress proof your brain. That's you so know? ridiculous. Or, um, you know, five ways to get rid of anxiety because right. I think it implies or it gives us this idea, I shouldn't be feeling this way. Right. And if I am feeling this way, then I'm not doing something right. right. And then people come in feeling very, very alienated and ashamed of themselves when actually what they're experiencing is just kind of a central aspect of human life and that we all experience. Mm-hmm. 
So mm-hmm. it's kind of funny when you say that, like some of those magazines I'm sitting here thinking of kind of, they've kind of become the new Vogue or cosmopolitan for mindfulness. Like with just the idea that here's the solution, there's one solution, you're going to be fine. And lost in that is the, is sort of like the, the image of the perfect body in a yeah. model magazine or something. The image of a perfect mind is hmm, I'm just sitting here all the time, never upset. And the reality is like, we're all going through stuff all the time. We're, we, if you're living a life, it, you are stressed out. There are things that happen. It's difficult. It's, but, we, but what we want to gain is capacity to respond mindfully. We want to gain capacity to not be hurtful to ourselves and others if possible. You know, and, and right. it seems to be the goal rather than this sort of perfection of we're all going to arrive at enlightenment. I just haven't met a lot of enlightened people. Right. <laughs> I see people practice a lot and, you know. Well, we have this image. I mean, even you see it in Buddhism with, with the image that's often portrayed of, of the Buddha. And actually what I, uh, this is something I've spoken about before, I think with Angelo, is Stephen Batchelor's work on the historical Buddha and actually looking at uh, how incredibly difficult and stressful his life was all the way to the very end. Mm-hmm. And we have this sense that if we just practice mindfulness enough, we're going to somehow get rid of our anxiety or our anger or our sadness and depression. And that was never the intention of mindfulness. The intention was really how do we relate to those experiences when they're coming up? Because they're going to continue to come up for all of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know another perspective that... Um we've discussed before and you, you use sometimes in your clinical perspective is attachment. Uh-huh. Can you speak a little bit to what that means? How does, what is attachment? How does it play out in the therapist client relationship? What does that mean? Sure. Um, I think it depends, you know, how far we want to go with this, but, um, and maybe just a general, um, overview for some of our listeners that haven't been exposed to this idea at all. And, yeah. Well, one of the things that I think helps from a biology or from an evolutionary perspective to kind of put this in context is that human beings of any mammal are actually the most vulnerable when we're born. You know, for example, like a horse, as soon as it's born, can run. A human baby is completely dependent on its environment. And one of the things that we have uh, a trade off for being able to walk and for being able to use our hands is that babies get born a lot earlier than they do elsewhere in the mammal world, in the mammalian world. So what that means is that a baby is born into the world in an enormous amount of brain development and nervous system development is happening in conjunction with its environment for the first three years of life in particular. And that sets a particular kind of tone for how the baby is going to view itself and view human relationship for the rest of its life. There are certain neuronal networks that just get laid down during that time. And that has everything to do with how a baby is soothed, how a baby is mirrored, you know, the gazing that occurs between a baby and a caregiver or the absence of that. And what we've seen is that it can lead to a variety of different attachment styles, which kind of predict Um, what sort of relationships uh, people may be drawn to, what kind of emotional experience, what kind of stance they're going to take to the emotional experience inside themselves. There are secure modes of attachment, and there are also insecure modes of attachment. Um, Like uh, there two dominant ones are um, avoidant and anxious attachment styles. So with an avoidant style, we tend to... um, um, pull away from relationship, uh, isolate, 
avoid. There's a way in which um, we maybe minimize some of what we're experiencing emotionally um, and are very, very hesitant to verbalize that and put that into words with another person. Um, the flip side of that experience is more of an anxious, anxious style where we feel so preoccupied actually with the other person and their emotional experience and almost feel compelled to try to manage their emotional life um, so that we can feel secure in the relationship that they're going to continue to be present for us. And I think understanding um, a person's inherent attachment style, as well as understanding that we can absolutely move towards more secure forms of attachment. Um, I think the research has demonstrated two years of intensive psychotherapy can move people towards more secure forms of attachment, as well as a, a five-year-long love relationship can also move people towards more secure forms of attachment. Um, and what does that look like? What's secure? I, mean, I got a sense of avoidant, you know, I avoid uh, anxious. I'm trying to like get more involved and manage someone else. What is, what's just this kind of general sense of what secure is? A secure would, uh, secure attachment. we sure as hell don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Help us out. Uh, secure forms of attachment would really, there would be a basic trust in our ability to be cared for. Uh, by other people, to be soothed, to be aware that if a person's leaving, it means that they'll also come back. It means that even if we're separated during the day from another person, that we know that they're keeping an image of us in their mind, and, and we're doing that for them. Um, so there's just this kind of inherent sense that um, I'm really struggling with this particular feeling. And if I go to another person, I have the sense they're going to be able to help me with it. And so then I can feel connected and I can feel trusting and I can feel um, like there's value to relationship. And I can also be aware that there might be periods of disconnection, but that we can reconnect. It's so awesome. I love it when Angela talks. Right, really that's obvious. You're so good, man. You're so I good just at really, talking. You are, <laughs> but I think you're good because you live it. And and I, I just want to close with that because we need to wrap up. But but you know how important in doing this kind of work is doing your own work. Mm -hmm. How do you? Because I, I just you know I'll, I'll brag about you for a second as a friend. You're somebody that you're somebody that I have noticed really takes good care of themselves. You know, you, you exercise, you, you seem to practice quite a bit. I know you spend, a, you know, I don't know what your home life's like, but I know you have a daughter and you spend a lot of time with your family. You, you seem to be somebody who's, you know, walking the talk, so to speak. Mm -hmm. How important is that in doing this work? Well, first off, I really appreciate the compliment. I feel like I should just start my day here every day and just <laughs> <laughs> just build you up. Just, yeah, my, I appreciate that would be it. My dream, so fortifying. Um, I, I think it's really vital, and I think in part it's because in order to be really effective as a psychotherapist, um, our, our attachment experience as therapists is constantly in the room, and our level of integration is, is vital to what's going to be able to unfold. And if we're not in a really a place of uh, living it ourselves, and I think especially with young adults, if anybody has helped me with this, it's young adults, because they can pick up on dissonance and bullshit. In, in a second, mm -hmm. and th they will let you know. Mm -hmm. So I think working with young adults has helped me to be very honest uh, within myself mm -hmm. because they'll, they will hold me accountable, mm -hmm. you know, Absolutely. and it'll show up in the work. 
Well, it shows up in your work, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning. And oh, my um, pleasure. We, we come back and do this again. Was this okay? Let's do it again. Okay, please. Well, we definitely will. Thank you so much, Angelo. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We look forward to uh, coming at you again next week. Thanks to our guest, Angelo Silliberti, my co-host, Angelo Keeley, our producer over here on the board, Liam. Liam. Liam's the guy behind here that makes everything sound really good, and he does an awesome job of it. And I also want to th- thank... Uh, for our intro music, Angelo. John Dion. John Dion. You Check him out on uh, SoundCloud. SoundCloud. John, John D- D-I-O-N-N-E. Yeah, if you like that, if you like that little beat that comes on, I've heard some of you say that you do. Check out his music. He does some great stuff, and thanks for letting us use your song. Talk to you guys soon.